Hello, and welcome to the Woodard Report podcast, where we empower business advisors to transform businesses. This podcast is your source for information and news you need for your accounting, bookkeeping, or tax practice. And it is proudly sponsored by Expensify. For more information about Expensify, please visit woodard.com slash podcast. And now your hosts, Joe Woodard and Heather Satterley. Well, folks, I am here today interviewing one of our keynote presenters coming up for the upcoming Scaling Height Conference in St. Louis, Missouri, Daryl Davis. I am so excited to introduce, if you don't already know who he is, to introduce Daryl to all of you. His story is incredibly powerful. I can't wait for him to share some of that in person coming up very soon here in St. Louis. Daryl, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. I appreciate it, Joe. Glad to be yeah. here. Yeah. So I just want to jump right in because I want to take every minute for you to share your journey um, and and uh, maybe a little bit of the insight of how you've been so effective in what you've done in life. But um, I want to I want to start with the musician that is Daryl Davis, which is maybe not even your greatest life impact. What's what's by once everybody hears what you've really done with your life. But but it's so cool. You know, some of the people that you played with. Can you talk about that a little bit? Uh, sure, I'll be glad to. I got my degree at, uh, in jazz from Howard University in Washington, D.C. I graduated in 1980. But uh, since um, since then, I've been a professional musician, touring the country and playing around the world. I spent 32 years playing uh, behind the, the king of rock and roll, the man who invented rock and roll, the late, great Chuck Berry. And uh, not every gig, but, but many gigs over 32 years. And I've worked with the Coasters, the Drifters, the Platters, Elvis Presley's, Jordan Ayers, Percy Sledge, Sam Moore from Sam and Dave, and just a host of others in the blues world, the uh, country world, and rock and roll world. I was with the uh, Legendary Blues Band for three years. The Legendary Blues Band was formerly Muddy Waters uh, Blues Band. That's and fantastic. I, you know, now, do you play any more professionally? Oh, or abso- you- absolutely. I, I have my own, you know, the Daryl Davis Band. And All right. we, we tour and we continue to play. That's great. Well, when you make your way to Atlanta, make sure I know. I'll buy some tickets and you I'll know, be right just, on the front row. I've played Atlanta many times, a place called uh, Blues Harbor, which is gone now, uh, Blind Willies and Chastain Park. That's fantastic. Well, again, when you come back around, I will be right there on the front row because I, I would love to hear that. Um, I am a musician myself, but in a completely different genre of piano. I was a, a classical pianist, uh, minor in music in college. So, you know, more of the read. I don't I don't have a good ear, but I, I can read well enough to play Beethoven and Chopin and things like that. But exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I've always envied you guys that could just rip it up, you know, and just play from the soul straight to the figures. I, I've n- never been able to do that. So. Um, I now want to take a jump back to um, to your childhood, which is fascinating um, because you, you most of your childhood was not spent here in the U.S., right? So talk to us a little bit about that. Yes, my, my parents were uh, U.S. Foreign Service. So I grew up as an American embassy kid because, you know, they worked for the State Department. So I began traveling the world at the age of three. I was born in 1958 and we got our first assignment overseas in 1961. And how it works is you're assigned to a foreign country for two years, and then you come back home here to the States. You may be here for a few months, maybe here for a year, and then you get reassigned to another country abroad. So I lived in Africa, Europe, and traveled to many, many other countries on other continents. 
And my first exposure to school was overseas. I did kindergarten, first grade, third grade, fifth grade, seventh grade, all in different countries. And, you know, we're talking the 1960s, right? And so back then, you know, my classes in elementary school abroad were filled with kids from all over the world. Anybody who had an embassy in the countries in which we had the American embassy, all of their kids went to the same school. So my classmates were from Japan, Italy, Nigeria, Russia, Czechoslovakia, France, Germany, you know, Australia. So that, you know, my first exposure to school being overseas, that became my baseline for what school was. However, every time I would come back home here to my own country, the U.S., after my dad's assignment, uh, I would either be in all black schools or black and white schools, meaning the, new, the uh, still segregated or the newly integrated. And even in the newly integrated schools, there was not the amount of diversity, you know, that I had uh, overseas, which just black kids and white kids, basically. Uh, so when I was overseas, I was living literally about 10 years ahead of my time because that multicultural, diverse classroom setting had yet to come to this country. Mm. And so when it did, I was prepared, uh, prepared for it. Uh, a lot of other people were not, unfortunately. Right, right. So that's probably helped you to, to you know, in your say, whatever abilities you had as a child to at least kind of facilitate that a little bit. But what what's really interesting, of course, if we did the math here, you're born in 58, you're in elementary school in the early 60s, mid 60s at the latest, you know, so, you know, just look, you know, look back at, at the lens of history. This this was not an easy time to be, I'm sure, a, a, a black child in America. Um and your Cub Scout experience, I think, was the, a flashpoint of that. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Absolutely. So in 1968, uh, we had just returned from overseas. And uh, at this point, I was in a school in which I was one of, black, of uh, two black students in the entire school. Myself, age 10 in fourth grade, and there was a little black girl in uh, second grade. Everybody else uh, was white. And so basically, you know, I didn't see a whole lot of her because being a second grader, I would run into her in uh, at recess or, you know, lunchtime in the cafeteria. So consequently, all of my friends were, were, were white. And several of my guy friends from my class were members of the Cub Scouts. And they invited me to join, which I did in 1968. I was the only Black Scout anywhere in the area. And we had a, now this is in uh, Belmont, Massachusetts, which is a suburb of Boston. Right next door to Belmont, right next door, are the towns of Lexington and Concord. So every year, uh, they celebrate what they call Patriot Day, and they have a parade from Lexington to Concord uh, to commemorate the ride of Paul Revere. So I was, you know, there were the Cub Scouts, the Boy Scouts, Girl Scouts, Brownies, 4-H Club, a bunch of different organizations. I was the only Black participant. And the streets were blocked off, sidewalks were lined with nothing but white people who were waving and cheering and yelling the British are coming and all that kind of thing. Everybody having a good time until we got to, to a certain point in the parade route when suddenly I was getting uh, pelted by soda pop bottles and cans and just small debris from the street by just a small group of spectators mixed in with the larger crowd off to my right on the sidewalk. And when I turned to look to see, you know, where these projectiles were coming from, I saw, as I remember, a couple of kids, maybe a year or two older than me, and a couple of adults, who I assume were their parents. I did not know them. 
uh, and they were, you know, yelling and throwing things. And I, my, my first thought was, oh, you know, those people over there, you know, they don't like the scouts. And because I, that's how naive I was. Innocence of a child, right? It, exactly. You know, I mean, I I had no precedent for this kind of behavior. And I hadn't done anything to cause anybody any anger towards me, right? Uh, so that was my first thought. And it wasn't until my den mother, my cub master, my troop leader all came running and covered me with their bodies mm-hmm. and escorted me out of the danger that I realized I was the only scout getting the special protection. So now I'm I'm wondering what had I done to upset those people. I still had no clue, right? And I kept asking my uh, my leaders, and all they would do is kind of shush me and rush me along, tell me to keep moving, everything's going to be okay. So I kept moving, and they never answered the question. Fortunately, the people doing this, you know, did not follow us as we kept moving. Uh, at the end of the parade, I still didn't have any answer. But uh, when I went home, uh, my mom and dad, who were not there at the uh, at the march were cleaning me up and putting band-aids on me and asking me, how did I trip and fall down and get all scraped up? And I told them, you know, I told them exactly what had happened. I didn't trip and fall down. Well, for the first time in my life, my mom and dad sat me down and explained to me what racism was. At the age of 10, I had never heard the word racism. It It did not exist in my sphere. I was around people from all over the world who didn't look like me, didn't speak my language, didn't worship as I did, but we all got along, you know? Um, we played together, went to school together, worked together, had slumber parties together. The term racism was was something foreign. It, it never even entered our, our, our sphere, as I said. So when my parents were telling me this, I was incredulous because my 10-year-old brain could not process the idea that someone who had never seen me, spoken to me, or knew anything about me would want to inflict pain upon me for no other reason than the color of my skin. It made no sense. And you being a child on top of all of that, right? right. Because all of that's bad enough, but then throw in the fact that you were a child. Right. And uh, I I mean, I I didn't consider the fact that I was a child. I just considered the fact that people were throwing things. Right. No, but I get it. But how, how much hate do you have to have in your soul? Right. to throw something at a child or hate it all, but then add the fact that you're a child, right? Right, so, right. In, um, in retrospect, yeah. Absolutely. Um, and so, you know, uh, I initially I did not believe my parents uh, because I just, you know, my, my 10-year-old brain could not process that. And, and, and to further support my disbelief that they were telling me the truth was the fact that my friends right there uh, in, in the Cub Scouts and at school in Belmont um, looked just like the people who were perpetrating this uh, this uh, transgression against me. And and so, so did my American friends overseas or my little French or German or Swedish or Danish friends. So it had nothing to do with the color of my skin. You know, that, that was my justification for disbelieving my parents. Right. Well, you know, we're, we're talking 1968. So I quickly learned that, um, you know. With quite the, the opposite. Yes. Quite the opposite. Exactly. Yeah. And then so- that fall. That fall, we you know we returned back overseas to another country, and I returned to what I called normalcy. <laughs> but, but, but Your normalcy, time, right? Yes. My, yeah, my perception of normalcy. Yes, so, exactly. Uh, every time, well, it was uh, a refuge at that point. I'm sure you were grateful, right? Get back to sanity here a little yeah. bit. But so, every time I'd come home, you know, there was another incident. Nah. So you had all that kind of that contrast, but I'm sure it put into your mind what 
what can be and should be contrasted with what is in a way that very few children, especially, were able to perceive, you know, in the 1960s. So, so now I want to fast forward a little bit. You, you're playing the piano in a bar, right? Ripping it up pretty good. Must be pretty good because you got compared to Jerry Lee Lewis. Some guy <laughs> walks up, says, you're the only person, and I think he said black person that I've ever seen that plays better than Jerry Lee Lewis. And then that changed your life. How did that conversation change your life and a lot of other people's lives? Okay, so this bar is uh, was in a town called Frederick, Maryland, which is about an hour and 20 minutes north of Washington, D.C. And uh, the bar had a reputation of being an all-white bar. You know, there were no signs saying no blacks allowed or whites only, nothing like that. But it had that reputation. And you knew if you were black, uh, you were not welcome there. And, you know, when you go somewhere where you're not welcome and uh, alcohol is being served, it's not always a good combination. So I knew the reputation and uh, I had joined a country band. They had, you know, they, they were pretty popular in the Maryland area and uh, they needed a piano player. And so I joined them. They were all white band. I was the only black guy in the band and usually the only black guy wherever we played. Well, they had played there, you know, a bunch of times before. This is my first time there. So... We had just finished the first set and we're taking a break and I'm following the band over to the, you know, band table. And I felt somebody from behind come up and put their arm around my shoulder. And I turned around to see, you know, who was touching me because I don't know anybody in this place and I knew the reputation of the place. So I'm wondering, you know, do I have to prepare to, uh, to defend myself or what? And it was uh, this white guy who was at least a decade and a half older than me. Big smile on his face. And he says, man, I sure love your all's music. I said, thank you. And I shook his hand. And he pointed at the bandstand and said, I've seen this here band before, but I had never seen you before. Where'd you come from? And I explained that I just joined the band. But yes, you probably did see them because they told me they had played here before. He says, well, man, I sure love your piano playing. This is the first time I've ever, I've ever seen a black man play piano like Jerry Lee Lewis. And the statement was not offensive to me, but I was rather surprised given the fact that this guy was 15 or 18 years older than me, that he did not know the black origin of Jerry D. Lewis's piano style. And I proceeded to explain to him that Jerry Lee got it from the same place I did, from black blues and boogie-woogie piano players. That's where that rock and roll, rockabilly style evolved. Elvis Presley uh, got it from the same place too, Exactly, right? yeah. exactly. And um, he was incredulous. He did not believe me. And I said, look, man, I know Jerry Lee Lewis. He's a friend of mine. You know, he's, he's told me himself, you know, you know, who, who we used to go see and this, that, and the other. He didn't believe that either, but he was so fascinated. He wanted me to come back to his table and let him buy me a drink. Now I don't drink alcohol, but I let him buy me a cranberry juice. <laughs> and uh, so we're sitting there and then he makes this announcement that this was the first time he had ever sat down and had a drink with a black man. And now I'm kind of like mystified, like, you know, where's this guy? What year is this? This is 1983. 83. He's never had a drink with a black man. Okay. Yeah. And, um, you know, so I'm, I'm, you know, given my background at that point, I'd sat down with tens of thousands of white people or anybody else had a meal, a beverage, a conversation. And I'm wondering, you know, where's this guy been in solitary confinement for all these years or what? (laughs) (laughs) And um, I asked him why. And I, I truly didn't know. And he, at first he didn't answer me. And then his buddy kept elbowing him to tell him, to say, tell him, tell him, tell him. I said, tell me, because now I'm getting more and more, you know, mystified. And he says, I'm a member of the Ku Klux Klan. And I burst out laughing at the guy. 
because <laughs> now, how did he respond to that when you're laughing? Yeah, was it like a know, joyful laugh? Was it a disarming laugh? It, it was like uh, I, I thought he was making a joke. Okay, you know? okay. Be, uh, in my mind, um, I I I justified what he said by thinking, okay, he he thinks I'm kidding him about Jerry Lee learning anything from black people and me knowing Jerry Lee. So he's going to, you know, kid me about being a member of the Klan. You know, he, he's trying to, you know, one-up me or something. And so while I'm laughing, because, you know, I know a lot about the Klan. Ever since uh, that incident with the Cub Scouts, I began buying books on the Ku Klux Klan, on white supremacy, black supremacy, anti-Semitism, the Nazis in Germany, the neo-Nazis over here, you know, and I, and I know a lot about them. And they don't just come up and put their arm around your shoulder and want to buy you a drink. It doesn't work that way. So I figure the guy's joking. Well, while I'm laughing, he goes inside his pocket, pulls out his wallet, flips through it, and hands me his Klan membership card. And I instantly recognize the Klan emblem, which is a red circle with a white cross and a blood drop in the center of the cross. And I stopped laughing. This thing was for real. You know, it was no longer funny. So now I give it back to him. And I'm wondering, why am I sitting here with a Klansman? And, um, you know, but he was very friendly. And we talked a lot about the Klan and music and different things. And he gave me his phone number and wanted me to call him whenever I was to return to this bar with this band because he wanted to bring his friends, his friends meaning Klansmen and Klanswomen, to see, as he put it, the black guy who plays piano like Jerry Lee. <laughs> now, I'm not sure he called me the black guy to his friends, but that's how he explained it to me, right? Right, right. And so I'd call him every six weeks, you know, whenever we were going to be back at the uh, Silver Dollar. I'd call him on a Wednesday or a Thursday and say, hey, man, you know, we're going to be down at the dollar this weekend. Come on out. He'd come both Friday and Saturday and bring Klansmen and Klanswomen with him, not in their robes and hoods, but, you know, in regular clothes. And they would gather around near the stage and watch me play with the band, get out on the dance floor and dance. And on the breaks, I'd make my way over to his table to thank him for coming. Uh, most of the Klan people that he brought would stay there at the table. They were curious, went to talk to me, meet me. A couple of them, though, would get up and, and walk to another part of the room. You know, you know, they didn't want to touch me or talk to me, just wanted to look mm -hmm. at me, which was fine. And so, you know, this went on until um, the end of that year, at which time I quit, I quit that band. And I went back to playing rock and roll and blues and R&B and whatever else was going on. Um, so a few years later, it dawned on me. Because, you know, I, back when I was 10, I formed a question in my mind. Uh, which was, how can you hate me when you don't even know me? You know, and I'd been looking for the answer to that question ever since the age of 10. And nobody could answer it for me, you know, to, to my uh, placate, you know, to, to placate my curiosity. Uh, it dawned on me a few years later after I left that band, Daryl, you blew it. You know, um, the answer to your question fell right in your lap. And you didn't, even, you didn't even realize it. Because who better to ask that question of how can you hate me when you don't even know me, than to ask someone who would go so far as to join an organization that has over a hundred year history of practicing hating people who don't uh, look like them or who don't believe as they believe. So you so, had the source for the answer. I had the source for the answer. I said, you know, get back in contact with that guy. Um, get him to hook you up with the uh, Klan leader from Maryland and then you know, travel up north, down south, midwest, west, and interview other Klan leaders and members and write a book about it. Because all my books on the Klan, I got a ton of them, I got everyone published, um, were all written by white authors. 
there had been two books written by black authors that talked about the Klan, but each one detailed how he escaped a lynching, one mm. in the 1930s and one in the 1940s, but not from the perspective of sitting down face to face and interviewing, you know, their potential lynchers, right? So yep. that's, that's what I wanted to do. And, and so, the book, by the way, folks, is called Clandestine Relationships with the right. pun you Clan-Destine Relationships, a Black Man's yeah. Odyssey and the Ku Klux Klan. So you can go check that book out. So well, now, that, now that you have me all now, curious. Okay, that is that book not is, the book? Uh, no, no, that, that is the book. Uh, okay. uh, Clandestine spelled with a K, not a C. But um, the book came out in 1997, and it's out of publication now. Uh, I've written a new book, which will have all the... Um, stuff from the old book, plus updates and new stories. Okay. And it will be out probably around the end of this year. And it's, it will be called, the working title right now is The Clan Whisperer. The Clan but, Whisperer. Okay, yeah, that's the working title. So they can right. go, but they can search by your name on Amazon toward the end do of not, the year? Do not go to Amazon or eBay <laughs> because a lot of, you know, some, some booksellers have leftover copies. And because oh. it's not a print, they've jacked up the price to some astronomical figure. Don't even do that. Just go to your library and check it out for free. Or okay. wait for the new book. And, okay, gotcha. Now, with the new book, though, that would be different, right? When the new book comes out, because you're going to are you going to do like the mass publication of that? Oh yes, absolutely. Yeah. All right, fantastic. So, all right. So now, what's the answer to the question? Because the audience is like leaning in, going, you, know, <laughs> "You did all this research. Why do people hate people they don't even know?" Okay, so I got two answers. Uh, the initial answer when I first meet them and interview them, you know, and there were a lot of people who I interviewed, and there were those who declined. There were those who wanted to fight me, you know, when I showed up you know, for the interview because they didn't know I was black and all, you know, all kinds of stuff. But uh, anyway, uh, the first answer, I'll give you an example. Um, I meet somebody for the first time, uh, a Klan leader, and I say, you know, how can you hate me? You don't, you don't even know me. You just walked in my room five minutes ago, and all you see is, is my skin color, and you've made a determination about how I am. Well, Mr. Davis, you have to understand something. Uh, black people are prone to crime. And this is evidenced by the fact that there are more blacks in prison than whites. Now, what he is telling me is absolutely true. Uh, the statistics will show that there are more black people in prison than white people. Okay, now I'm just listening to him, right? So he takes those statistics that support his narrative. So it's like confirmation bias. You know, the, the stats are accurate. But the stats don't tell you why. They just tell you the results, right? And um, I listen to him some more, and he tells me that uh, black people are inherently lazy, that uh, we always are trying to scam the government welfare system, we always have our hand out for a freebie. Um, he goes on to say that, uh, that black people are born with a smaller brain than white people. And the larger the brain, the, uh, the, the more um, intelligence this you know, capacity for intelligence. The smaller the brain, the lower the IQ. And he says that this is evidenced by the fact that every year, uh, black high school students score lower on the uh, SATs, scholastic aptitude tests, than, uh, than white students. Again, he is correct. The, but uh, he's, mis he's misusing the data. Yes. Exactly, exactly. So, you know, the, the data does show that. All right, so I don't challenge him. I just sit back and listen to him, right? And then at the end, I explained to him, you know, yes, the data does show that, but what you're not looking at is the imbalance in our judicial system that send black people to prison for longer sentences than white people. And the socioeconomic 
causes of crime, economic being a key crime. piece, right? Right, and and the fact that uh, that you know many black people can't afford the uh, Johnny Cochran's or F. Lee Bailey's to uh, represent them in court. Um, yes, in are, terms are of- just because of economic disparity. There's a desperation there that causes you know kids to get pulled into all sorts of other economic streams that aren't legal, and all of that that's not because of their skin color; it's because of their environment, right? right. So exactly, yes, and so you know he. He doesn't bother to go that far because the official data supports his narrative. That's all he needs, confirmation bias. So, uh, you know, I explained that to him. I go on to say, you know, if you check the data, you will also find out that there are more white people on welfare in this country than black people because whites outnumber blacks. And then uh, I said, um, uh, as far as the, uh, um, the brain thing goes, I said, you know, most black kids in this country go to school in the inner city. Most white kids go to school in the suburbs. It's a fact inner city schools are not as up to date, not as qualified as suburban schools. I said, I will guarantee you that white kids who go to school in the inner city can score just as low, if not lower than some of those black kids. Black kids who go to school in the suburbs can score just as high, if not higher than some of those white kids. It has nothing to do with the student's skin color or the size of the student's brain, but has everything to do with the educational system in which that child is enrolled. All right. So now what happens is this, that person goes home and they, and they say, you know, or they think to themselves, man, I just had a three hour conversation with the black guy, you know, and we didn't come to blows, you know? Um, and, and because I didn't, I did not attack him. You know, is is what he was saying offensive? Because that would have fed into more of the confirmation bias if you had yes, gotten angry, exactly, right? Exactly. Yeah. And and you know, so because you know, when he first walks into the room and sees me, his wall goes up. He's ready to defend and offend, right? And uh, and he's used to that. He's used to pushing people's buttons and people yelling and screaming at him and telling him he's wrong and so forth and so on. I, I didn't do any of that. All right. Um, so the more I listened to him the more his wall came down. And the more the wall comes down, the more his ears open because he's curious, how come this black guy isn't pushing back? I just basically told him he was a criminal and that he's lazy and that he's stupid, you know? And he has not pushed back. So now they're curious to hear what I have to say. So after he's done exhausting all this vitriol, it's my turn to respond. So his ears are open because he doesn't know why I didn't respond before this, right? Now, I could go on the offensive and say, no, you are the criminal. You are the one who's, who's been bombing black churches and dragging black men behind pickup trucks and hanging them from trees, et cetera. And the data will show that I'm 100% correct, right? Right, exactly. If I, if I did that, the wall would go right back up, the ears would close up. So rather than attack him, I defend myself and explain, look, you know, I don't have a criminal record. I'm as black as anybody you've ever seen. I've never been on welfare. And guess what? My SAT scores got me into college. I have a college degree. Now I know, because I've already done my research on him, that he barely made it out of high school. Hmm. But if I throw that in his face and say, well, you didn't even make it out of high school. I got a college degree. You know, that, that's an attack. So right. rather than attack him, I just show him what I have. Yes. I have a college degree. All right. So now he goes home. And he thinks, I just had a three-hour conversation with this black guy. We didn't come to blows. And because I've already planted the seed, you know, he heard me because his ears are open at that point. 
He thinks, you know, what that Daryl Davis guy said is true. Oh, but he's black. But what he said made sense. Oh, but he's black. So they're having this this uh, cognitive dissonance, right? And it, it, it becomes a dilemma that he's stressing out over. So he has to come to a decision to resolve that dilemma. Does he consider uh, my skin color and continue living a lie? Or does he disregard my skin color and say, hey, you know, what he said was true. I, I found out the truth and now change his ideological path. Most people will follow the path of truth because it's less stressful than having to defend a lie continually every day, right? But there will be those who will go to their grave being hateful, violent, and racist because they they want to defend the lie, you know? Uh, we, I think we see that in our political arena. These yes, days. we see people playing that out all day long in a lot of arenas, correct? Just thick in the bubble, thick in the bubble, thick in the bubble. Right. So I I know we could, we, we could keep going for telling an amazing story after story after story, but just kind of, kind of jump to the end. This was the first of a lot of dominoes that fell. Right. Share with the listeners the whole impact of what happens next with these conversations. So over time, not over, um, overnight, but over time, change occurs incrementally. You know, our most powerful weapon or tool to dismantle racism is the least expensive it's free and yet it is the most underused it's called conversation dialogue i am a firm believer that a missed opportunity for dialogue is a missed opportunity for conflict resolution so over time uh these people not all of them but many of the ones that i talked to began quitting um, these white supremacist movements. And many of them ended up giving me their robes and hoods, their swastika How flag. many total robes and hoods have you collected? I haven't counted recently, but I think between 55 and 65. But over 200 have left. Over all of these rank and file clansmen, or did you, yeah, did no, you convert some, leaders? Some of, some of them were leaders. Some of them were, were, were national leaders, what are known as imperial wizards. Some of them were grand dragons, which are known as uh, state leaders and different other officers, men and women, and then your rank and file plain white. So Maryland is a particularly powerful part of the story when you're talking about state leaders, right? So talk about what happened in Maryland, then what happened again in Maryland. There are two different phases of this, right? I mean, you single-handedly dismantled the Klan in Maryland, and then talk about what happens next. And and 13 other states. Yeah, okay. Um, but Maryland yeah, so, was particularly interesting yeah. because what's happened very recently, right? So talk yeah. to about talk to us about that. Okay, well, so the so the next answer at you know, I've been doing this for 41 years now. Um, so that you know, that was the first answer to my question, how can you hate me if you don't even know me? And then when they end up quitting, whether it's months later or a year later, two years later, uh, the answer to the same question changes and it becomes, Daryl, you know, I'm really sorry. I don't really know why I hated you. I really had no reason. So that becomes the second answer uh, on almost every time I ask that question again. Um, so the uh, the one who was telling me about black people prone to crime and all that was the uh, the, uh, the Grand Dragon of Maryland, which means state leader, like governor. Um, and then in the course that you know that I knew him, he got promoted from Grand Dragon to Imperial Wizard, which means national leader, and he oversaw thirteen states. And um, when he and I became you know great friends and he you know rethought this ideology 
Not only did he quit and renounce the Klan, he dismantled it. He shut down his leadership and, and, and his realms. He didn't just hand it off to the second in command and say, I'm done, you take over. He shut it down. And that included 13 states. That's unbelievable. Now, now but you then know, a resurgence in Maryland, because I can't wait for yeah. the listeners to hear this crazy thing. And it's <laughs> so recent. So go ahead. Yeah. Tell so, us. so many years later, um, about uh, maybe 17, 18 years later, another guy tried to start up um, a group in Maryland. And um, it, it, it never really gained a lot of traction. You know, he got a lot of press, but, uh, you know, he had, he had a bunch of members and he was doing this, that, and the other. Uh, he ended up going down to uh, to Charlottesville for that uh, Unite the Right uh, white supremacy. Famous route. recent Charlottesville, folks. I mean, yes. we all lived it out, what, about three or four years ago? Actually, it was um, August 12th, 2017, so six yeah. years ago. So six years ago. Gosh, time flies. Anyway. Yeah. All right. So tell and, us what uh, happens next. Well, he got, he got into some trouble for uh, firing a gun at that rally. And um, I contacted him and said, look, you know, you and I need to sit down and have a, have a conversation. And so um, after, 20, after talking with him on the phone for 20 minutes, he, he agreed. Uh, I drove to his house an hour and a half away, unarmed, by myself, uh, sat in his living room. His whole house is covered with KKK stuff and uh, Confederate battle flags. I sat on his couch, which was covered with a Confederate battle flag blanket. And... Um, we talked about American history. Uh, he gave me, he and his fiance, a Klan's lady, gave me a two-hour lecture on American history from a Confederate perspective. I just sat and I listened. And at the end, uh, you know, his wall was down because I hadn't pushed back. You know, you know, I heard things that were wrong, but I didn't push back. So now it was my turn to, uh, to talk. And first thing I did was I corrected him on the things that he got wrong. But I also commended him on the things that he got right. And rather than me spend two hours lecturing them on, uh, on American history, I had a better idea. A new museum had just opened up in Washington, D.C., called the Smithsonian National Museum of African American History and Culture. It is the world's largest uh, black history museum. So it was very hard to get into because it was brand new, but it's free, but you had to have tickets. So I had a connection there, and I said, listen, let me get some tickets. We'll set a date. You guys come down to my house. And I will drive you down to D.C. and we will explore that museum. So they said, OK. So I got the tickets, set the date. They came down and they sat right now, By the way, my- the fact this is Richard Preston, right? So I mean, everybody yes. could figure that out from the news. The fact that he would say yes is a miracle in and to itself. And I think it was a result of the fact that he felt heard by well, you. Let right. Me, let me let, let me back up and, and, and show you the tools okay. and the values that one must use to affect this kind of please, uh, because resort. that's, that's the connection yes. between your yes. story and these business leaders with their clients that I think yes, is so important. Absolutely. So how do you be persuasive like that? Okay. So I, I've gathered this from, from all my travel. I've played in 50 States. I have been to 62 countries on six continents. And what I have learned in all my travels is no matter how far I go from our country, next door to Canada, next door to Mexico, on the other side of the planet, everybody I meet, no matter how similar, how different they may be, we all are human beings. And as such, every human being on this planet wants these five core values in their lives. 
Every, everyone wants to be loved. Everyone wants to be respected. We all want to be heard. We all want to be treated fairly and truthfully. And we all want the same things for our family as anybody else would want for their family. And if we can learn to apply those five core values or any of those five values, when we find ourselves in an adversarial situation or a culture or society in which we're unfamiliar or uncomfortable, I can guarantee that the navigation of that situation, that culture, that uh, society will be much more smooth and much more positive, you know? So those are the values that I, that I, um, I express. Now, when I say respect, you don't have to respect what somebody is saying, you know, if you don't believe in it, but respect their right to say it. And, and people, you because know, people want to be heard. How are they, how would you expect them to want to listen to you if you have not shown them that you're going to let them uh, be heard as well? So that's why I sat there and listened to people tell me that I'm a criminal, hmm. um, you know, and that, or that you have a smaller brain than white people. I mean, that's right. that. You, I mean, that's like bite your tongue till it bleeds stuff. But you just but, sat but, you and know, listened. Yeah, that, that, that's number one. But number two is this: know who you are before getting into that room with that person. All right, know who you are and where you stand. Do your homework. Uh, uh, you know, study, research them, find out who they are. Put yourself in their position, all right? Because if you don't know who you are and you go into a situation like that, you know, they're going to tell you who you are. <laughs> and you might walk <laughs> out that room believing them, right? Right. So, you know, um, I know who I am. And was, was what that guy saying to me offensive? Yes, it was offensive. Was I offended? Absolutely not. And the reason being is because I know who I am. And, you know, th- why would I believe a lie? This person does not know me. Yeah, he doesn't know my my, uh, my, my record or, or my school record or anything like that. So why would I believe a lie? Now, if my mom or dad were to say, you know, you're lazy, um, you're, you're prone to crime, you know, and you're kind of dumb, maybe I would believe them because they brought me into this world. They raised me. But not somebody who's never met me before, and, and he is going to make all those So don't give people lazy. power that they don't, really have, right? Don't, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. You know, so keep your emotions behind you and just let them spew out whatever they want to spew out because they want to be heard. And then chances are they'll hear you. And that's your opportunity to plant that seed. But in order for that seed to grow, you must come back and water it. You must nurture it, you know? So um, anyway, with, uh, with the guy from Charlottesville, um, we went down to the museum. We looked at, you know, spent about two and a half hours in there. And um, he learned a lot of things that he had never seen. You know, it took a while for them to sink in. And he began changing. He began, you know, not overnight, but changing incrementally. He's come, you know, he has a little ways to go, but he's come a long ways. But at least he's going in the right direction. And that's what's important. Hmm. So... If folks want to know more about you, there is the book coming out at the end of this year. Right. There's the book that's in the local library they can check out uh, called The Clan with a K, Destined Relationships. Um, there's a documentary from 2016. Um, where can people go to find that documentary? The documentary is called Accidental Courtesy. And I believe it, it is currently on Amazon Prime and also iTunes. 
Okay, good. So Amazon Prime and iTunes, check them out there. Uh, Accidental Courtesy, Daryl Davis Race in America. If you want to drill down beyond what we were able to do in this podcast, maybe put some visuals behind it or, or something something like that. So Daryl, I'm sure there's a lot more we could do, especially with your five core values to unpack all of that. But I know you're going to be sharing that at Scaling New Heights too, coming up in St. Louis, these five core principles. But I just want to kind of put a fine point on it. Folks, if you're struggling with change leadership with your clients, if you're struggling to get them to respect your price, to respect your boundaries, to respect your team members, to respect your process, and you think it's impossible to persuade them, um, I think Daryl's proved <laughs> that there are bigger, bigger persuasive challenges than what you're facing with your clients. And that well, means his know, five core values are super powerful. And another thing that I will be talking about and that I will uh, demonstrate for your, for your, for your audience is this, Scaling the Heights, is we don't, you know, one's perception is one's reality. Even if it's not real, it's their reality. Correct. And you cannot change somebody else's reality. Only they can do that. And if you attack their reality, you're going to get resistance because they only know what they know. And you are attacking what they know to be real. So mm. they're going to push back. It can get loud. It can get violent because you are attacking their core reality in their mind. So you never want to attack somebody's reality. If you want someone's reality to change, what you have to do is you offer them a better perception or better perceptions, plural. And if they resonate with, with your perception or one of your perceptions, then they will change their own reality because their perception becomes their reality. Mm. So I will demonstrate how to give them perceptions as opposed to attacking their reality. I and absolutely that love that. Because, because, you know, it's always better when someone changes themselves rather than you try to force change upon them. Yes. People don't, yeah, I heard it quoted, people don't dislike change, they dislike being changed. Yes, that's what they'll resist. Yes. So, Daryl, this is extremely exciting. I can't wait for you to unpack the five core values and a lot of the change leadership and persuasion techniques from our our main stage. Um, Your life is an inspiration. Thank you for living it. Thank you. Yeah, and thanks for being on our podcast. My pleasure. Thank you for joining us. For more information, please visit woodard.com slash podcast.